0: Welcome to Breakthrough Radio, a global business radio show where smarter strategies deliver breakthrough results by adding an entrepreneurial touch driving today's profits. Now, get ready for three powerful breakthrough segments with Michelle Price.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you're tuning in to Breakthrough Radio from. This is Michelle Price here, where we're coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas today. And on Breakthrough Radio, we are celebrating nine years of talking about how to master the internal and external strategies for business. Well, it is the second Monday of the month, and that's when we get to hear from Stuart Rogers, Marketing Technology Director for VentureBeat, the breakthrough tip, Is a short tip at the top of the show where you can go take action on that information right now. Our featured spot today is with Bill Meehan and Kim Johnstert, co-authors of Engine of Impact. Our featured interview is a 35-minute conversation that's a nice deep dive into the topic of the day to allow you to gain a much better understanding, level of knowledge, and application for your business. Then we wrap up this second Monday with our Startup Spotlight with Lawson Gal from the Canon Houston. The Startup Spotlight is a 10-minute segment that allows you to learn about startups who are making things happen all around the world. I want to thank you for coming to listen to Breakthrough Radio, and if it's your first visit, please make sure you thank the person who told you about us. Here's the scoop. You're going to want to listen without distraction. And that's why you only need to write down one URL today. It's www.thebreakthroughradio.com. You know, every week you have access to a blog post that gives you the frame for the conversation for each episode. And that means that any and everything that we talk about today, something we may reference to as a resource, we link to it there. Whether it's how to reach Stuart, Bill, Kim Lawson or myself, make sure you do visit and connect with each one of us. Do more than follow, reach out, truly connect, ask us a question, engage us in conversation and of course, when it makes sense for your business, hire us. Pop over here and see what we're going to learn from Stuart Rogers today about a blockchain. Well, I know in the startup world, there has been a lot of conversation around the topic of blockchain. As a matter of fact, you know, Stuart, we just had what we call a transatlantic fireside chat at uh, Houston Startup Grind where we were listening to an Israeli entrepreneur who has a Switzerland startup who's doing some amazing things in uh, the cryptocurrency space with the base of blockchain blockchain. Uh, and what they're go, what, what they're producing. So, what does blockchain offer us when we think about it from a marketing and, and, and technology perspective in marketing?
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, blockchain is is really the word that everybody is is pushing out there right now. It's the one thing that everyone's talking about right now, and. It is really quite incredible. Uh, blockchain has the capability and, and to really, truly disrupt things for the first time in a long time. Um, you know, I, like, I know we like to think we're all very disruptive. I know we like to think that we're all very innovative. But, yeah, actually, there hasn't been a huge amount of innovation either in uh, the gadget world or the technology world in general, um, and certainly not in sales and marketing for some time. And yet blockchain has come along and... Blockchain technology, um, which underpins all of the cryptocurrencies, of course, things like uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and Litecoin and so on and so forth, uh, actually has a huge amount of implications as far as marketing technology is concerned. Um, And even things like, you know, how we're going to pay for goods in the future um, and things like how we're going to fund our projects in the future. Um, you know, uh, what I think would be a great idea is just like to, to give it a little bit of a flavor of what blockchain is and, and what it does and why it's important. Um, and, you know, talking about it from a marketing technology standpoint, it's really, really interesting. I'm, I'm sure most of the people who listen to this, uh, you know, if you haven't already seen it um, at least once in your uh, in your careers, I'm, I'm sure uh, you can very easily find it. In fact, we'll put it in the show notes. But You know, Scott Brinker um, has worked on the uh, the marketing technology landscape for uh, for a long time now, many many years, and it just keeps on blowing up. It keeps on doubling and doubling and doubling. It's it's up to you know six thousand products at this point in time, and it could easily be eight and a half thousand products you know right now. Um, And what was kind of interesting is earlier this year, back in September, Jeremy Epstein. Uh, did a really nice thing. He mapped out what the blockchain marketing technology landscape looks like within the context of the same categories and groupings that Scott Brinker uses. And, you know, I wrote the article on, on that. In, in fact, we'll stick that in the show notes for you as well. And what you'll notice is that there's a lot of white space. We really haven't even got started with blockchain technologies and marketing technology yet. But, you'll notice some little pockets, some little areas where it makes sense. And one of the areas is advertising technology. You see, we have this huge mobile advertising problem, Um, massive amounts of fraud, huge amounts of fraud. And how can we deal with that? How can we fix that and solve that? Well, One way is to use blockchain technology, and that's because blockchain is really a transparent ledger. It's really uh, basically me saying, um, I know what you're doing, and you know that I know that you know what you're doing, right? It's kind of everything is transparent. Everything is in a ledger. We know what's going on. So therefore, it's really, really hard to have anything approaching the sort of mobile ad fraud problem that we have right now, because it's all completely transparent. We can see what's going on at all times. and, And so Blockchain technology lends itself very very nicely to advertising technology in particular that's why you'll find that right now there are twelve blockchain technology powered ad tech solutions each one of those is vying for its opportunity to become the winner in that particular category. Um, what's kind of interesting about blockchain technology is it's it's almost uh, creating standards uh, so when I say that we have 12 advertising technology solutions sitting in that uh, category right now, um, it's not going to be like Scott Brinker's original graphic where it's going to just double and double and double every year. What will happen more than likely is that one, two or three of these solutions will be determined as the winner by the consumers and and the users themselves. And we'll end up all using that one, two or three in, in each category because you know, Once you've got one uh, that works and everybody agrees it's the best solution, you don't really need any more in each category. So we're going to see that. We're going to see um, marketing technologies powered by blockchain um, that won't explode the same way as the rest of the marketing technology world, um, and that offer the kind of transparency, um, that offer the kind of, uh, you know, ledger that's there, but basically allows us to make sure that we're doing everything above board and that everybody knows exactly what's going on. Um, you know, and some practical examples of that, um, there's a company called Colu, and what Colu are doing is they're using blockchain technologies to change the way that we pay for goods, for example. Um, and, you know, the way that they do that is, is allow for this uh, digital wallet app that uh, allows local economies to, you know, basically have their own currency, um, that's really nice because it means that people can invest in local businesses, um, people can support their, their local business with you know in a particular way, and use uh, the uh, the blockchain technology to basically invest in and then pay for um, the people that care they care about in their local area. It's a it's a really nice idea, um, and it basically allows regions to effectively kickstart their uh, their own their own region. Um, you know, it's a really smart idea in terms of how to change the way that we, we pay for things. And that's something that, you know, marketers and, and everybody else need to sort of keep a, a, an idea, you know, an eye on and, and, you know, really understand going on in the payment space with uh, with blockchain and uh, with, um, you know, the cryptocurrencies in, in general. Um, you know, another thing that, that blockchain is opening up is the capability of, of raising funds. When you do an ICO, which is the initial coin offering, um, that is effectively just a way of crowdsourcing funding. Um, But then there are other platforms like Thunderbeam, which is kind of like a stock exchange, but that allows you to list your startup on their exchange, and then people can invest in you, and that's another way for companies to raise funds um, via a blockchain technology solution. So, you know, blockchain is changing everything from the way that we raise funds to the way that we pay for goods and services Um, to the way that we actually run our marketing technologies because of the transparency of it. You know, if you're not already looking at blockchain and learning about it and understanding it, um, now would be the time to get involved because it really is going to disrupt everything. And uh, I can see an amazing future ahead uh, for blockchain technologies in sales, in marketing, in payments, in funding, and in every other part of uh, the way that we go about our daily lives right now.
1: Yeah, I really love the transparency of it, so it'll be interesting to see how people choose to uh, plug it in with what they do. Thank you, Stuart.
0: Thank you. Um, Always great to be here.
1: Well, in our last episode, we talked with David Marquette about how to turn the ship around with your leadership. Now, a big company that's been instrumental leading both internally and externally is Ford. How will you follow Ford's lead and be more strategic in how you connect and serve your customers? You know, today's consumer has changed the game of buying for business no matter what industry you sit. And it's why having a buyer journey map has become mandatory if you want to succeed and grow. And this is exactly what Growth Hacking CMO does with their clients when they're approached and ask for help to grow businesses and grow revenues. You know, Growth Hacking CMO are masters at crafting that road map and then showing clients how to structure their execution precision. Defining what's important to customers today and using analytics to see how they're making their buying decisions is the savvy way to prepare for their future needs and for you to stay relevant. And when you know what's valuable to your customer, you can use that to capture their attention and have it be welcomed. Whether you have 10 or 10,000 customers, your buyer journey map saves you time, money, and headaches. It is your sweet spot in business, one that can help you generate profits and gain traction over your competitors. So connect and discover how growthhackingcmo.com can help you do that for this last month here in 2017. Before we... Start our featured interview today. Remember, we appreciate it when you share today's show by going to www.thebreakthroughradio.com. Let me share a little bit about our next guest. William Meehan is the Lafayette Partners Lecturer in Strategic Management at Stanford University Graduate School of Business and a director. Emeritus of McKinsey & Company, where he has served for more than 30 years. He is a special advisor to the Kings of Philanthropies, where he also serves as a board member. And at the GSB, Bill has taught the course Strategic Leadership of Nonprofit Organizations and Social Ventures for 20 years. He developed and teaches a pioneering course focused on the role of private investment in developing economies. Private Equity in Frontier Markets, and in 2014, he received the Excellence of Leadership Award from the GSB. Now, Tim Starkey-Junker is the President and the CEO a Lecturer in Management at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and former Executive Director of the Henry R. Kravis Prize in Nonprofit Leadership. At King of Philanthropies, Kim oversees initiatives to alleviate global poverty by identifying, supporting, and partnering with high-performing social sector leaders and organizations. And with more than 25 years' experience as a leader in both the business and social sectors, Kim has served as an advisor to a wide range of people. Uh, foundations and nonprofit organizations, guiding, strategy, impact, evaluation, board governance, and organizational effectiveness. So, you know, you guys, please join me as we welcome both Bill and Kim to Breakthrough Radio today. How are both of you doing?
2: Very well. Thank you, Michelle.
1: Well, thank you. So one of the things that I have – discovered just not just through conversations here on Breakthrough Radio, but just being really, really active in both our our business and our philanthropic community here in Houston is that, Bill, when one of the things uh, happens in conversations when we start discussing nonprofits is there still seems to be this misnomer that Nonprofits are like the stepchildren for for-profit businesses, and yet some of those high-performing entities are nonprofits. Can you share with listeners how that's changed and why it's important for profit businesses to understand the impact of nonprofits?
2: Well, let's just start about the fact that there are many nonprofits that are high-performing. Certainly not most, but many. Uh, You know, just to pick one example, uh, you know, America probably has, uh, by any poll, 15 to 17 of the 25 top universities in the world. This is Harvard and Stanford and MIT and Columbia. And the reason we do is because of our philanthropic model. Uh, It's not that Oxford and Cambridge are not several hundred years older and high, high quality. But because they lived for many, many years on government funding, they were not able to fund as largely and as rapidly the, uh, the extensive research and development in science and biomedicine and what have you. So the nonprofit form is in fact very advantageous uh, for certain activities. Uh, And what corporations can learn from that, uh, you might say, is mission-driven or values-driven motivation and incentives. Uh, There's no question that most people who work for nonprofits do so in part because it enables them to live their values, uh, serve others, and take meaning from that. And I think uh, most corporations would benefit from an extra dollop of that. How is it that what we do benefits our customers, our employees, our society? And is there any way all of us uh, who work for it can take meaning from it?
1: Well, you know, it makes me think of something else when we start diving into this direction, Kim, and that is that a lot of for-profit companies are really understanding how important it is to be value-driven. I mean, Startup Grind itself, we're constantly talking about what our values are so that it allows people who are attracted and really resonate with that to go, that's who I want to work with. So as that's a real driving factor in the for-profit sector, how is that affecting the nonprofit sector? Is it making that line a little more invisible?
3: Well, there has been a blurring uh, of lines between nonprofits and for profits. Uh, we've certainly seen hybrid organizations that have emerged in recent years, um, but I think you know there is still distinctive um, you know f- distinctions between for profit and nonprofit and. You know, where I think um, n- nonprofits increasingly uh, are an attractive place for um, people to work uh, as a way to manifest their values. And if you look at business school graduates over time, uh, in the last, say, 20 years, it's become increasingly um, exciting to start a nonprofit or um, to work for one. And, you know, as Bill and I can look at our students graduating from the Stanford Graduate School of Business, um, it's no longer something um, that, you know, students are embarrassed about. They're um, very enthusiastic, and there's a very vibrant um, segment of students that is uh, graduating from business school and embarking on careers in the nonprofit sector.
1: Well, I'd like to ask both of you, so you all decide amongst yourselves which, which one of you wants to lead with an answer on this. Uh, it would be kind of interesting to see if there's any differences in thought from either of you. But for listeners, kind of take us to the point to help us understand some of the things that you're, you talk about in Engine of Impact when you're saying that we're in the early stage of the impact era. What does that mean? What is that looking like as we're shifting gears?
2: Well, a couple of things. First of all, let's take the historical perspective, uh, which I think in this, in this time of highly dysfunctional politics is something that uh, we can all find very heartening. Uh, it was Alexis de Tocqueville, the Frenchman who wrote famously when he visited America in the 19th century, that uh, Americans uniquely, when they have uh, something they need to get done, a problem to be solved, form associations in a way that uh, Europeans or Asians perhaps did not. And this, uh, the, the, this early era, uh, we call it the industrialist era, when Carnegie and Ford and Rockefeller and others came out of the American Industrial Revolution and towards the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, uh, turned their eyes, just like the information technology titans are now, to trying to improve society. And that industrialist era uh, at the turn of the century really put in place much of what we know to be the nonprofit sector in the U.S., community foundations, private foundations, other things. We then moved on to what we call the independence era, which uh, was in the 60s. Foundations and other nonprofits began to gather more scrutiny from government. Uh, An insurance executive named Filer led a commission. And that's really when uh, the nonprofit sector Uh, became known as the third sector or the independent sector around uh, the turn of the 21st century the first internet bubble uh, we had the information era, where GuideStar and Charity Navigator and GiveWell and a whole series Network for Good came out and began to offer philanthropists and nonprofit executives the basic information that came from the Form 990s that every nonprofit is intended to uh, uh, give to the IRS every year. And now we move to the impact era, which is probably about 10 years old. And philanthropists and nonprofits and foundations alike are asking the question. Are we having the impact that our mission uh, embodies, uh, reflects, or are we not having the impact? If we're a college prep program, how many of our students actually go to college, stay in college compared to some other group uh, that is working with another organization or no organization at all? So what we are now, right, is in the impact era. We know that we're facing the largest transfer of intergenerational wealth as we baby boomers begin to see the bright white light in the lessening distance. Uh, There's going to be a massive transfer of wealth, some of which is going to go to philanthropy. Our estimate is it's going to fall short of what we need. And our call to action for the book is nonprofits need to do these seven elements of strategic leadership, so that they can earn the right to achieve to to get the money that this this uh, this generation intergenerational transfer of wealth uh, is going to reflect over the next say thirty years. So, Kim, you want to add to that?
3: Uh, only to share some brief findings of some research that we did. Uh, it was the Stanford survey on. Leadership and management in the nonprofit sector, and um, we surveyed more than 3,000 organizations, uh, nonprofits, and their stakeholders, and we found some very intriguing, interesting results. Um, which is that more than 80% of organizations struggle with one of the, f- the core elements of strategic leadership that we talk about in our book, uh, and you know, we lay out these these seven elements of strategic leadership, and, uh, and based on the results of our survey, only 11% of them excel at all of them. Um, so, you know, there are some that are really excellent at everything, but most struggle with one, at least, or more. Uh, and, you know, we think, tying this back to the impact era, we think now is the time um, that organizations um, can and should address um some of these areas in which they struggle with strategic leadership and that in doing so that they can earn the right uh, to receive um, this additional philanthropic funding that's coming in the future.
2: And, and, and Michelle, well, I if I could just add for your listeners, what well, we're really, you know, you, you know this is, this is uh, primarily business people listening. And really what we're saying is we're not talking about bringing business Practices to nonprofits, but we are talking about bringing the same rigor that you would make looking and evaluating an investment in business to philanthropy and foundation grant making. Uh, there's just no reason anymore, now that the information is available and a lot of evaluation is oriented, that we as donors or large uh, scale philanthropists cannot evaluate due due diligence of a donation before they make it.
1: Well, one of the things that I found fascinating when I was reading The Engine of Impact is in the very beginning when Jim Collins has written the forward for you, and he was talking about how and what he liked about the book and what he felt people would most get out of reading it was understanding the right mindset and and what it really means to have obsessive dedication, and that struck me because for nine going in ten years, we've been talking about the internal and the external strategies in business, and even though that's been a huge red thread for us, I had to chuckle at myself, my my, my own bias of not even thinking about how important that internal and external Strategies are for the nonprofit arena. Uh, so, when you approach it from that perspective, what are you noticing that would be beneficial for them when it comes to what is the right mindset that allows them to be obsessively dedicated?
2: Well, uh, you know, the first the first three chapters of the book lay out something, which some will view as the deep fundamentals, and others will look at, well, we already know that. To which our response is, then why aren't you doing it? And the three elements that fit together in a feedback loop are, number one, a clear and focused mission, the evidence uh, that we need to argue from business data because there really is no uh, uh, dependent variable for nonprofits across nonprofits, But we know that in business, focus beats diversification, and so we are a strong voice for a clear and focused mission. Our second chapter just simply says that you need a strategy tied by a theory of change that achieves the mission, and a theory of change is nothing more than a logical argument, maybe even with some facts and data, which shows how you are going to achieve your mission. I'll just give you one example. I'm on the board of GiveDirectly, which is one of the organizations pioneering direct cash transfers over mobile telephony to the poorest in Kenya and Uganda. It's transformative. The logic is very simple. If you give the poorest people cash, they will use it to the most benefit. Well, GIVE Directly is dedicated to measurement, specifically to applying random control trials. And that's the third element, which is, okay, you have a mission. Okay, you have a strategy to achieve your mission. Well, lastly, can you show me some facts that demonstrate that it's working? Now, if we just applied those three factors to most nonprofits, uh, they, they, they would fall short. Uh, on those essential elements. And any business person uh, bringing, again, the rigor, not the values of business, but the rigor of business, would say, well, of course I wouldn't make an investment without that kind of of information. But for some reason, even large-scale philanthropists don't always demand this kind of basic loop. Uh, and those you know as much as anything those are the, those are the central uh, foundational elements that we outline in engine of impact
1: so can I be curious to discover since you discussed earlier that you did a survey and learned some very interesting information in this space? Have you also been able to uncover? why it is, as, as Bill says, only 11% of them are actually living up to, oh, we know that already?
3: Well, I think there's a whole, a, a wide range of factors. Uh, one is incentives. Uh, if a Martian came down from outer space and looked at the social sector, uh, and specifically the social capital market, and by that I mean all the funding flows in the sector, Uh, he would be perplexed by all the dysfunction. Um, So on the one hand, he would see, you know, many wonderful, uh, very well-run nonprofits that struggle to raise funding. And on the other hand, he would see um, organizations that are mediocre at best that are benefiting from significant um, philanthropic dollars. And underneath that, um, there are um, some, you know, very perverse, practices um, that exacerbate these problems. Uh, One is, uh, as Bill mentioned, um, people don't do basic research uh, when making their donations to determine whether or not an organization is high-performing or not. One of the reasons we wrote Engine of Impact was not only to equip nonprofits to improve their performance, but also to give donors a sense of what they should look for, um, how to identify high-performing organizations. Another practice that's quite um, dysfunctional in the sector is uh, a tendency for donors to to want to fund program work, uh, actual work on the ground, but a reluctance to fund the core operating expenses um, that organizations need in order to um, build their organization's capacity and scale in the long run. Uh, And so consequently, it's a phenomenon that's called a starvation cycle, which has been talked about for many, many years, um, but still is not resolved, and it's got to... um, start with the funders and the donors uh, in order for them to, for the entire sector to shift. And the final um, area of dysfunction in the social capital market that I would point to is this practice of making one-year donations. Um, People typically um, make a donation for next year or at the end of this year, it's, you know, giving season and whatnot. So they'll make a donation for next year. But what nonprofits really need in order to scale and grow is they need um, multi-year commitments, pledges, so that they can plan uh, and they can lay the foundation um, to grow and scale over the long run. And until some of these practices shift, uh, I think um, there are going to be perverse incentives that are going to um, make it very, very difficult for even the most well-meaning nonprofits um, to fully um, perform and, and execute.
2: Michelle, you mentioned that you were in Houston, and uh, just to pick one example, uh, true in most uh, major cities in the U.S., Houston is one of the global centers for uh, high-end academic and and other medicine. Well, uh, I know there's some state universities. Uh, academic medical centers there, but most of them, in fact, are nonprofits, and that's unique in the world. And in order to fund those, uh, we need philanthropy, uh, and and again, that's a, a uniquely American phenomena, and an area where, again, quite frankly, we're amongst the leaders in the world.
1: One of the things that I've learned from having the the blessing and the luxury of talking to brilliant minds each week that are working on just you know magnificent bodies of work like the two of you are working on is that there's a couple of things that happen when people write a book Um, one of the things that's been shared with me several authors is there a lot of times is a chapter even though you are a thought leader and have a deep knowledge of understanding of the topic, otherwise you wouldn't have written the book. There's usually a chapter that surprises people when they're taking it out of their head and putting it down on paper for this exercise that kind of catches them and goes, huh, okay, I didn't realize I was going to learn a a new lesson. Did that happen for either one of you when you were writing the Engine of Impact?
3: Yes. For me there were two big learnings. Uh and one of them um uh, emerged during our conversation with Jim Collins before he wrote the foreword and he asked us what we had learned. And um I I synthesized uh at that moment and the the notion was that these seven elements of strategic leadership that we put forward that it's not enough um, to be good at most of them, that you actually have to excel at all of them at the same time um, in the same way that in an engine, uh, all the components have to be high-functioning at the same time, or if there's one crack somewhere or one flaw, the entire thing will be dragged down. Uh, And so it's this notion of needing all seven at the same time. And the other thing for me that that, that um, I really took away from the process of writing the book, uh, we have a one chapter that's called "Insight and Courage and this is a nod to the qualitative factors um, that uh, distinguish high performing leaders and the nonprofit sector and their organizations. Um, it's the insight um, coming at um, this work with a particular Um, insight about uh, how a problem can be solved in a distinctive way, and then perhaps most importantly, it's the courage, uh, the courage to uh, execute at a very high level even when there are so many factors weighing against you. And we use that chapter to tell stories, um, stories of these incredible nonprofit leaders who are working on the front lines every day. to make the world um considerably better than it was before uh and so we have these stories of these you know courageous leaders uh one of them is sakina yakubi working in afghanistan on the front lines um education and um health care um, mostly for women and children uh in afghanistan and you know she has undertaken Undergone considerable personal risk every day uh, in order to do this work and sacrifice. And so for me, I took away the inspiration um, that, you know, we all might think that our lives are hard. And, you know, there were days when we were staring at the blank page, writing this book, um, feeling the weight and the burden of it. Um, but then, um, you know, you have a chance to, to put yourself in the shoes of some of these leaders and... Um, you know, are left with nothing but inspiration.
2: And, Michelle, I thought you were going to ask another question, which was there must have been a chapter that you loved that you didn't get into the book.
1: Oh, that's a uh, good question, Bill. (laughs) Isn't it?
2: And and so my favorite chapter, uh, but nobody else's, was called Donor Power. And, you know, if you are a capitalist, if you do believe in business and financial incentives, uh, you know, as as I've taught my students now for 20 years, some people enter the nonprofit sector thinking that it'll be an escape from money. And, in fact, most nonprofit executives, certainly uh, executive directors or CEOs, spend more time raising money than they do anything else. And so the donor power thesis is that if we're going to have real change in the sector, uh, a change in focus, but also a change in the level of impact, it's going to be because donors do the good hard work of evaluation and analysis and say, we will give you our money if you blank, blank, blank. So Kim is the CEO of King Philanthropies, which is focused on alleviating extreme poverty. And what King Philanthropies is doing is, first of all, picking organizations with a proven and demonstrable impact on alleviating poverty. They're making three-year grants all in with the possibility of an evergreen, which is to say at the end of every year they will sit and openly and evaluate their performance. And if King Philanthropy sees that they're making progress towards achieving impact, they will add another year. And so underneath it all, uh, the, the black and white message, perhaps too forceful, is that we as donors really have the most power to influence the performance in the sector by the questions we ask and the uh, conditions that we create for uh, sharing our generosity.
1: No, I think that is a very interesting and a great uh, way to remind listeners today that in reality, just like customers are in charge – When you're looking at, you know, business, so donors are in charge when you're looking at nonprofits. And when people are focused on their responsibility, their part of the equation, things tend to work out better.
2: Yeah, I think there's no question about that. And it's, it's, it's just in the nature of nonprofits. I mean, some nonprofits arguably have customers though mostly we would call them students or patients uh, or clients. And certainly for the nonprofits focused on helping the neediest of society, the human and social services, it's important for them to connect with the needs of their clients. But in the end, uh, rightly or wrongly, it's very often you know, the big money donors who will be able to influence, uh, you know, the focus and the strategy and the measurement of the nonprofits to which they donate.
1: Well, I want to thank both of you for taking time out to come on Breakthrough Radio today and help our listeners understand what is the engine of impact, why is it important for strategic leadership to be uh, effective in the nonprofit sector and, and maybe even inspire some of them to uh, take up that mantle and, and, and work in that space as well. So um, I thank you so much.
2: Well, thank, thank you. you, Michelle.
1: So here is a question for you, everyone. I want you to be thinking about, have you visited and participated Startup Grind Fireside Chat yet? As a matter of fact, I think we're probably going to be giving a a copy of the Engine of Impact to Mike Mullard, who sits in this chair for Houston this month. I think he would thoroughly enjoy learning what both Bill and Kim have put in this body of work. But what I want to ask and encourage you is to reach out and find out what is happening in your city or country with Startup Grind because you're going to find a group of enthusiastic entrepreneurs and investors who are looking to create profitable businesses and affect positive change in the world. Now, if you do happen to be in Houston, like a a short or quick heads up, believe it or not, Don Cooper is going to be in Houston this week. I'm so excited. Isn't it cool? You know, he's, he was on our show for seven years. Well, on Wednesday the 13th here in Houston, we're going to dive into what is Pitch a Kid and how can we gain clarity uh, from our pitches to kids and find out as well what is happening with Mass Challenge um, because Mike is also the managing director for that Texas region. So these are all things that are going to be so important for how we're going to improve the startup ecosystem and the results that we have going on here in our region. So make sure you do find out what's happening in your city with the grind. Now, for our startup spotlight with Lawson Gao, we are going to be diving into another really great organization here in Houston. But remember now, Startup Spotlight is open to any startup around the world. That's the really cool thing about us having a global audience. So if you are one or you know one, make sure you reach out to us with the hashtag BBS radio, raise your hand and say, "I want to, I want to come on air. So, you guys, please join me as we b- welcome Lawson Gal from the Canon Houston to Breakthrough Radio today. How are you doing today, Good. Lawson? Good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, you know, one of the what, there's actually three things that listeners really expect to learn during our startup spotlight. They want to know who you are and why you're valuable to the startup community. They want to know what your solution is and how does it affect them. And then I want to know what stage are you in and how they can help. So let's start off with that first one. Who are you, Lawson? So who is The Canon and why are you valuable to the startup community?
4: Well, The Canon is a company that's building out a 17-acre entrepreneurial campus here in West Houston at the intersection of I-10 and the Beltway. And included in that, is a co-working space for startups and other creatives uh, that we're surrounding with the infrastructure that startups need to succeed, including mentors, angel investors, service providers, and other participants in the startup communities. And what's interesting is we have just opened, and it's been a validation that people are really hungry for this type of thing in Houston. And as we grow we're going to uh, complete the build-out of the rest of the 17-acre campus into a place where all you need to win the day professionally and personally is on the campus.
3: So
1: I'm curious to ask you, what was the impetus for the idea of what you're going to be doing on this campus that you're building out at the Cannon? You know, a lot of times what we learn – from brilliant minds who come on Breakthrough Radio is there was usually a trigger that caused them to take an action. What was that for you? Well,
4: it's a good question. And for me, it's pretty distinct. Uh, I, I was born and raised in Houston. I love Houston. I went to Rice University here. And Houston's startup scene has, uh, in my mind, historically lagged and been less impressive than it could be. Given that Houston is so big and has so many resources and great universities, I've been disappointed. And there's this this terrible reverse osmosis effect, if you're a Houstonian, of uh, great talented entrepreneurs getting some traction in their startups and then leaving our city to go to Austin or, or beyond. And so for me, the canon is a manifestation of my desire to build up the infrastructure in Houston for our entrepreneurs, to keep our entrepreneurs here and uh, and make the path forward for them well trailblazed.
1: Well, I have had the luxury of actually seeing some of their renditions and being able to, like, visually uh, encapsulate what it is that you're wanting to accomplish at the Canon. Can you give us a little bit of... You know, even though we're auditory here on the radio show, give us a little visual of what it is going to be like on this 17-acre campus.
4: Yeah, so I'll I'll try to paint you a picture with the words. So we have moved into a 20,000-square-foot building, and um, we have about 100 people in here so far uh, in the first kind of two months of our operations. But the thing that we're really excited about is about – about you know twenty five yards away from us is a big sixty five thousand square foot warehouse that we are building out into being one of if not the biggest co-working spaces in the world uh that'll uh, when it's complete be a hundred and twenty thousand square foot facility with a luxury movie theater and a world class event space and a mix of offices and conference rooms of various sizes, and then a bunch of open space as well uh, to be a hub and an epicenter for Houston's on- entrepreneurs around which all the other entities on the campus can gravitate. And when I talk about the rest of the campus, um, we're partnering with the gym to build uh, exercise facilities on the campus, uh, a restaurant. Um, we're developing some mixed retail that includes all the things that you would need uh, during your day, like a coffee shop, a juice bar, a barber shop, dry cleaning, so that you can really walk onto the campus and uh, and never leave if, if you don't want to.
1: So when we think about what's happening here in Houston, and then we watch what's going on in, in uh, startup uh, ecosystems across not just the United States, but really like around the world, what have you seen? Have you had the opportunity to travel and see a success somewhere where you're like, Oh yeah, we need to figure out how to make that happen back here.
4: Yeah. So I like to say, we're not reinventing the wheel at all. We're actually just taking the wheel and applying it to Houston because what we've, what we've begun to, uh, to realize increasingly in is that, uh, startups equipping our entrepreneurs and their startups with the tools they need to succeed is one of the best job creators and economy stimulators that we know and there's there's sort of become not a science but a, but but almost a formula of creating startup hubs and uh, engaging all the players across the entrepreneurial stack in a dense environment to uh, facilitate serendipitous collisions of innovation. And there, this is happening. Uh, but but Houston hasn't focused as much on developing these startup ecosystems, uh, and and so the canon is here to do that.
1: Yeah, I'm going to hold my hand up and say some of them think they are, and some of them said they're going to, but the results have been really lacking. And, and it's been fascinating just to look at the different plans that you guys have for the canon. And, and I can hold my hand up because I've actually been out there and, and, and working with you and your team. I can see a huge difference just in the thinking and the mindset and the vision of what you're wanting to accomplish. You talk about it really differently. You don't just have the words. You can actually see very empowering uh, mindset behind it as well as the action is aligned to the, the, the values that we at the Startup Grind think are really important all around the world. Now, share with listeners what stage you guys are at, because you've only opened for two months. So where, where what stage are you at, and how can they help you now to get to that next stage?
4: Yeah, well, one thing that's been nice is people and organizations like Startup Grind have, when they hear what we're doing um, – come on board and been passionate ambassadors for us. And that's really what we've been asking people is we've been in the business of informing people throughout the community, the different communities in Houston of what we're creating and, and asking them to just be a part of it. We want to be a porous, uh, inclusive community that involves as many people that are willing to be involved. And so right now, we've moved into this 20,000 square foot building we've started to fill it up and we're encouraging startups small businesses freelancers and other creatives to just get in here we're a startup too let's figure ourselves out and let's grow together and then graduate into the big building when we when it's done and that timeline is about a year away so we're breaking ground on the big build out in january and um that'll that'll be about an eight to twelve month build out, and when it's completed, then we will roll our community into the into the big guy and um, so yeah i mean we've we've been um, just sort of rallying the community to uh, to be evangelists for what we're creating to to take part to move in, but if not then uh, then to at least go out and and let people know that this exists because we want to be a tremendous resource for these types of, of startups in Houston, whatever that means. And so uh, we've been a bit of a blank canvas that's willing to mold and shape ourselves uh, based on the feedback we get from, from the entrepreneurs in our city.
1: You know, it reminds me of something that I do with clients all the time in the sense of helping them to really uh, – focus and and, and understand how important it is that, you know, the things that we talk about in the startup arena that come natural to us don't always uh, come natural to people in business. And that is reshaping their thinking about how they're delivering uh, the customer experience or the user experience and having it be an integrated relationship versus someone saying, well, this is what we're going to offer and you can either, you know, you, you like it or you don't like it. That's okay. We're not for everybody, kind of thing. And I'm like, well, I totally get that, but I think that there's a lot of groups, organizations, and businesses that really miss out on what can happen when you actually work in unison with the people who are, are going to be your customer or, you know, your community base as you're doing with the Canon. And so I think that that will deliver. A really, really different kind of results. So, I love the fact that that's the direction that you guys are taking. We have another 60 seconds, and I'd like to ask you to share this might be an unexpected question, but what is Silly Box and why is that important to you?
4: <laughs> silly Box. So, I've always loved writing children's poetry, and I've published two books, and one of them is Silly Shoes, which is the world is too serious. What we really need to do is put on our silly shoes, tie them up tight and go infuse the world with goofiness. And that's been a really fun thing and project to work on. Silly box is sort of a nonprofit offshoot of that, that uses the subscription box, uh, business model to, um, empower people to subscribe for a $15 or $30 a month box of books, toys, and school supplies that we then deliver to foster care, to children in foster care throughout the city of Houston. And um, it's been awesome. Uh, it's a nice reprieve from the business world, and it's, it's fun to, to be a part of uh, something that's doing, doing real good and, uh, and being a, a force for, for change and kindness and good in the city.
1: Well can I ask you how how was Silly Box born? What what was the trigger that allowed that to be birthed?
4: Well, I, uh, I I just sort of noticed that the the subscription box business model had never been applied to charitable giving and it's such an easy mm-hmm. process that you can you can build out the the tools to, to have sort of an automated system to where they subscribe. The money every month goes into our bank account. And then once a month, we take that money and we buy the stuff, and we put it in the boxes and we ship it out. So it's one month of work. I mean, one, one day a month uh, that we really have to work and it, and it does so much good and it can change lives. And so um, it just sort of seemed like a no brainer
2: to me.
1: Well, I have to give it to you, Lawson. That was a very creative approach. I agree with you. I've not seen anybody do that in the charitable giving space, so well done.
4: Well, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, um, it's fun. I mean, I, I love kids, and I have four younger siblings, and that's sort of why I started writing silly children's poems and uh, just sort of grew from there.
1: Well, I want to thank you for coming on Breakthrough Radio today telling us about what's happening with the Canon, what your mission is, what your vision is, how people can get involved, whether they're here locally or they're somewhere around the world. Um, We've we've discussed how we'd like that connection to happen for entrepreneurs here as well as through startup growing chapters around the world. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that will play out in 2018 as well.
4: Well, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: But, so a quick reminder to everyone today who tuned in to Breakthrough Radio, you be one of the things that's important to us is your feedback. Our entire team really appreciates it because our intention has always been to bring you guests each week that expand your knowledge and inspire your actions to grow your business and to accomplish that it benefits all of us to hear what you like what you didn't like which topics you're enjoying which ones you want to learn more about who you want us to bring back of the show you really loved do you want us to have on we haven't had on yet And we get it, not everybody wants to have that conversation in the social space with the hashtag BBS Radio. So you can always email us at thebreakthroughspecialist at gmail.com. Again, that's thebreakthroughspecialist at gmail.com. And I want you to be thinking about how are you going to learn more about blockchain for 2018? That was a great uh, tip segment that Stuart gave us at the top of the show. And then another question is, what are you going to do differently this week to measure your impact and make a difference? So That was definitely a message that came through when we talked to Bill and Kim, all authors of the Engine of Impact. And then... When are you coming out to meet Lawson at the Canon? And if you're going to visit Houston, make sure you let me know personally because I want to take you there so you can see what the Canon is doing in our local startup ecosystem. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Breakthrough Radio. You know, it has been an awesome journey. We are about to start our 10th year. Oh, my God, it's, it's, it's almost unbelievable. <laughs> to hear me say that come out my mouth, but it has been fabulous to get to know some of these brilliant minds that come on here on Breakthrough Radio and share with you who they are and what they're doing and what kind of impact they're having on the world. And we want to hear the same thing from you with our hashtag BBS Radio. Tell us who you are, what you're doing, and what kind of impact are you having on the world. This is Michelle Price here delivering you the best business minds each Monday live. I'm coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas, where we work with you a business down the street or around the world, telling your dynamic story, attracting your ideal customers. We will talk with you again next Monday.